this morning's message, uh, before we actually get into it, I just need to share something with you. On the internet and uh, in other places, there are people, pastors and, and others, giving messages about what where our country is going through right now. And I want to gently warn you to be careful uh, about this topic because there are some, you know, who are being very critical of, of even the church and, and also others that are uh, saying this is the end of the world and, and all of these things. And, and we've already covered those things in, in previous messages since this has all come to pass. We know this is not uh, the end of it all. We know this is just uh, what Jesus called uh, the beginning of sorrows. And uh, these are just things that are s- uh, slowly ramping up. In Matthew 24, you remember that Jesus said that there would be, in the last days preceding his second coming, um, and, and certainly we know that the church is going to be removed at least seven years prior to that, his physical second coming uh, in the rapture. The events leading up to that time were going to be preceded by famines, pestilences, and earthquakes in various places. And we're certainly seeing those things. Um, Even a casual observer can see that. So I don't want to get into that right now, but I will say this. Uh, Just be careful about what you listen to and and how you listen. You know, I don't claim to know God's purpose in what is happening in the world, in our country. I do know this, though, and this is the thing we have to hold on to. Is God getting our attention? Yes, He is. Is he getting the church's attention? Yes, he is. Is he getting the world's attention? Absolutely. He's really getting their attention. And, 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 and so for us to, to know for sure exactly what his, what his main goal is in all of this, we can't say. It's appropriate for us, uh, all of us, uh, unbelievers and for the church. It's important for us to, to look at this as a wake-up call, a wake-up call for all of us. To, to really put off the things that we know are wrong in our life. And many of you, uh, we've all got issues in our life that we need to put away. The Bible is replete with passages about putting off the things of the flesh and putting off besetting sins and, and all of these things, you know. And, and those things, those lists are very long. And, and we've read those, we've seen those. So we need to take stock in that and, and say, Lord, in my own life, uh, what is there that um, that I need to turn away from? And, and certainly the world needs to do this as well. They need to open their eyes and, and to see that Jesus is coming back. He's coming back very soon. We don't know the day or the hour, but we know that he is. And certainly he's got their attention. But church, we have to realize that this is a good time for us also to get our eyes refocused on Christ and to Put away those things that we know that we, maybe we've been flirting with. Uh, any issue in your life, it's important for us to put those things away and really draw closer to the Lord. Not in condemnation, but if, if, if we are convicted of anything, then let's take it and, and let's go forward, but not in condemnation. Condemnation will draw you away from Jesus. Conviction will hopefully bring you closer to Him. If God has His way... Um, everyone will be challenged, and I believe that is true. Everyone on this planet right now is being challenged. And so we, the church, need to also take that challenge. But I'm not going to say that this coronavirus is judgment on the church because Jesus has placed his judgment already on his son at the cross. 
Are we going to go through persecutions? And this is really not a persecution, but it is a tribulation of sorts, isn't it? It's not the great tribulation, but it is a tribulation. You know, something difficult. And, and the first church went through tribulations as well. They were persecuted. They had different things going on. So we're no different than they. But this is not the end, but we're approaching the end. And so it's important that we make our calling and election sure. It's important for those who don't know Christ to really get to know Him because the time is short and we don't know the day or the hour. And so take that for what it is. And I want to encourage those of you who are, who've got a sensitive heart. And uh, the message this morning is, is not something I purposely put at this time. Uh, because as you know, we've been going systematically through the Bible and we just happened to land here this morning at Revelation chapter 2, verses 1 through 7, which talks about the church of Ephesus. And the title of the message is called The Loveless Church. And this message this morning, some of you, I want to ask you to be careful because some of you are more sensitive and you're, you're willing to take it all on the chin and you're willing to uh, even let it uh, condemn you. And don't let that happen. Uh, there are opportunities, there are uh, places of growth for all of us. Take whatever growth that, that, that you can get out of this that the Lord is encouraging you with and discard any condemnation, okay? Because the Lord is not here to condemn anyone. He's here to get our attention, and He's here to draw us back to Him. Just as the song we sang, First Love, and as, you know, the Loveless Church, this topic that we're talking about, is, is important for us. And by the way, this title is not something I placed on it. This is one that came right from the uh, New King James Version Bible. The translators put this over the top, and I liked it because it fit. Uh, not, it fit the church at Ephesus at the time that this is being written. So why don't we go ahead and get started. Let's open up to Revelation chapter 2. We're going to look at just the first seven verses. And I'd also encourage you, uh, Joel Rosenberg, just yesterday or the day before, put out a 12-page study on pestilence and the judgment of God. I think that's a really healthy thing for you to read because you can get a, a biblical stance on uh, how these things played out in, the, in, in history. And you can see um, uh, a balanced view of this. And so I think that's really good for us to, to check out. It's, uh, if you go to the Joshua Fund website, by Joel Rosenberg. You'll probably see that 12-page study. I read it myself. It was pretty good. So I think it'd be important for you to check out so you can put things in perspective, okay? That's important in this time to put things in perspective, not give way to a bunch of uh, sensationalism and critical, um, you know, um, heavy criticism. We need to look at it uh, the way I think the Lord would have us to. So let's uh, look at Revelation 2, verses 1 through 7. And before we read that passage together, I just want to share a few things uh, about the mystique and the neglect of the book of Revelation. That there's, uh, of all the books in the Bible, this is one of them that uh, is read the least, um, especially in uh, churches uh, that, are, um, that don't really believe in the Word of God. Can you believe there's actually churches that don't really hold to the Word of God? But there are, and we're not one of them. We, we hold to the Word of God. But there are churches that won't 
share this book at all. And yet, what does it say in verse 3 of chapter 1? It says, Blessed is he who reads and those who hear the words of this prophecy and keep those things which are written in it, for the time is near. So there's a blessing attached to it, and that's what we need to remember. But this book does have a mystique about it, and uh, unfortunately it's not read very often. And of all the letters in the New Testament, as we know in the New Testament, uh, Paul wrote a number of letters, certainly to the Romans, the Corinthians, the Ephesians, the Colossians, the Thessalonians. He wrote many letters. These seven letters that Jesus dictated to John here encompassed in chapters 2 and 3 of Revelation, these seven letters are the most neglected out of all of them. Everyone's heard of Ephesians. Everyone is well-versed in, in Corinthians and Romans. But for some reason, these seven letters of Jesus are the ones that are neglected the most. In fact, there was an archbishop in the Church of England. His name was Archbishop Trench. And this is what he said. He said he cited as saying that um, he said it is to be regretted that while every chapter of every other book of the New Testament is set forth to be read in the church and wherever there is daily service is read in the church three times in a year and some or portions of some oftener while even of the apocalypse itself two chapters and portions of others have been. Uh, admitted into the service. Under no circumstances, whatever, can the, the second and the third chapters ever be heard in the congregation. And so he's saying that just in the, in, in the, in the orthodox of the church, um, th that there's even, uh, that they never include these portions in those, uh, those sections of the service, which is kind of a travesty because this is where we learn about ourselves. That's why these seven letters are important. In fact, chapters 2 and 3 that we're beginning this morning, we're not going to get through all of chapter 2, certainly, but uh, these chapters represent the things which are. If you remember, look in your Bibles at uh, Revelation chapter 1, verse 19. Remember what Jesus said to John. He says, write the things which are. And we, we already saw those things because those things encompassed really um, the first chapter of Revelation there, uh, specifically uh, chapters 12 through um, 12 through 18 really talked about who Jesus is and in his uh, in his glorified state they're, they're, they are there so Jesus told him write the things which are that he was seeing right there at the time and so John wrote those things and then he says and write the things um, I'm sorry I messed that up <laughs> the things which you have seen the things which he has seen was in actually chapter 1 verses 9 through uh, 18 but he says now write the things which are and the things which are uh, at the time John wrote this penned uh, by him the the churches at that time were the churches uh, the seven churches that we're going to be looking at. The first one is Ephesus, and then Smyrna, and then Pergamos, and Thyatira, and Sardis, and Philadelphia, and Laodicea. These are the seven churches. And you remember in that, uh, that verse as well in chapter 19, and he says, and also write the things which will take place after this. And we know that chapter 4, in the Greek, the very first two words are after these things. John says, after these things, I looked up. And... Um, and beheld a door, a door standing open in heaven, and the voice says, "Come up here." So after these things, that's exactly what John is referring to in this outline. After these things, 
So after the church age is, is done and the church is raptured, then begins that section of the Bible from chapters 4 to the end that speaks of after these things. So we are looking currently at the things which are. And so these letters were addressed, if you recall, if you see, it says to the angel of the church of Ephesus. These letters were addressed to the messengers. When it says the angel, uh, it can refer to angel, but it can also refer to a man, to a pastor specifically. And these letters were addressed to the messengers or the pastors of these seven churches that were in Asia Minor at the time. And while these letters do address commendations, encouragements of things that, were, that they were doing well, they also, Jesus also issued uh, um, a reproof as well. And so we, they, need to, um, they needed to listen to that because it was something true to them, and we need to pay attention as well. These seven churches also can be seen as representative of the church during the church age because if you look at these seven churches and the letters that Jesus wrote to each one of them, every one of us can fit into one of these churches, maybe even into a specific church. And within those seven churches, uh, the things that they were doing well and the things that they weren't doing well um, throughout the whole entire church age, we can say uh, with certainty that those things have also been in the lives of the churches as well. In other words, there are times where we are doing really well and some of the things that he commends them on, we can be commended as well. And there's other things that we need to be careful of and things that we need to change, things that we need to repent of. And so those things are true of these letters. Remember, the church age really began on the day of Pentecost when the church was born on the day of Pentecost. You recall, and the first members of the church were Jews. Uh, they were um, those, those men in Israel, in Jerusalem specifically, and the church age will finish or be completed at, at the rapture of the church. And so if, um, that is the church age. And one of the interesting features of these seven letters was that Jesus dictated to John uh, was that although each one is written to a specific church, they were all to be read by the other churches as well. You'll find at the very bottom of each letter, it says, He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. So these church, these letters were written to specific churches, but they were also meant to be read to the other churches as well, because Jesus knew that all of the great things and all the things that weren't so great affect us all at one time or another uh, throughout the church age, throughout the church age. And we find ourselves in here too. And there's a familiar pattern, actually, to each one of these letters. You'll find that there is uh, there's seven elements of each of these letters, and they're not necessarily in the same order. But the, you'll see that Jesus addresses the specific church. And secondly, he will also share some characteristics of himself and a description of himself. And that's important because certain churches needed to be aware that he is the one who can see. He's got the eyes of fire. And um, he knows all things. And that's important for somebody who is struggling like the church in Ephesus was in the first century. They need to hear those things. And also Jesus, the third thing is he, he gives knowledge of the things that, that, that they were doing. The, the, the things that they were doing. And also, uh, fourthly, uh, words of commendation. Uh, encouraging them in the things that they were doing well. And also, fifthly, <laughs> words of rebuke things that they needed to change. And this is true for all the churches here in these letters, except for the church at Philadelphia. It's the only one where Jesus didn't have some uh, 
uh, reproof of any kind. They were doing really well, and he exhorted them and encouraged them in that. And number six, these letters often end, toward the end, there'll be a, a, an exhortation or a promise, and it's often set off by the phrase, He who overcomes. He who overcomes. And, and certainly we are more than overcomers in Jesus, and so we have to remain uh, steadfast and, and vigilant and going forward and not backward, not backsliding, and uh, we need to keep going forward. And finally, at the end, there's a universal command that he says, He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches, to the ecclesia, that that's what the church is. We are the called out ones, the sent out ones. And so, as before we get into the letter, we have to look at Ephesus for a few minutes because the city was located on the western shore of modern-day Turkey back at that time. Uh, it's also been called Asia Minor, but it's on the western shore of that area. And we believe that it was from there that the Apostle John, he wrote his first three letters, uh, uh, 1 John, 2 John, and 3 John. And um, one of the interesting things about this city at the time that Jesus was writing this letter to this church was that they had a thriving economy. They had a great trade thing going on. Uh, There were um, four great trade roads that went through Ephesus, and it was known as the gateway to Asia. They had a wonderful seaport there that encouraged trade at that time. It excelled in education and the arts and music and religion. And they had one of the largest theaters ever known to man at the time. It was a theater that could seat up to 250,000 people. And one of the great things about it, at least great uh, from, from their perspective, not, not the church there, but the people of Ephesus who were, were pagans, they were idolaters. Um, the church was in the midst of that. But one of the things that the city uh, really enjoyed was this wonderful temple that they had to Artemis, who was Diana. Uh, Diana was uh, the, uh, the a Greek god of uh, fertility, and she had her temple in Ephesus, and it was one of the seven wonders of the world. And a lot of things happened here at Ephesus too. We know that Paul lived here for three different or three years, ministering to the people at Ephesus. You can read about that in Acts nineteen and and twenty. And he also worked a number of miracles, healing the sick. Paul uh, performed exorcisms. Uh, He confounded magicians and caused many in the city who were given over to those strange arts to, they they gave their hearts to the Lord and they ended up burning all their books uh, in the center of the city. You remember that? And also this was the place where Paul wrote his first letter to the Corinthians. Uh, It's a a place that was home to the Apostle John. And uh, he ministered there and ultimately died there. We know that Mary, the mother of Jesus, was there living with John. Remember when Jesus was on the cross, he looked and he says, Woman, behold your son. And and Jesus was pointing to John. And he looked at John and he says, uh, uh, Behold your mother. Behold your mother. So, John, I want you to take care of my mother. And so when John went to Ephesus, Mary would go with him as well. And we also know that Paul's protege, Timothy, also lived and ministered in Ephesus. So Ephesus was a significant city. It was very busy. And um, they had a lot of things going on. And it's interesting, when we look at the letter to Ephesians, meaning Paul's letter to the Ephesians, not the letter we're looking at today, 
Paul in Ephesians chapter 1 said this, beginning in verse 15. He says, Therefore, also, after I heard of your faith, so this church that was in Ephesus at, the, at Paul's time, which was about 30 to 35 years earlier than what we're talking about today. Okay, So we're looking at around 62 A.D., and so at that time, notice what Paul said of the Ephesian church. He says, Therefore, I also, after I heard of your faith in the Lord Jesus and your love for all the saints, I do not cease to give thanks to you, making mention of you in my prayers. Now notice what Paul was saying. He was commending them for their love. And then notice what happens. Now, fast forward 30 to 35 years, that church that once started off really in love with the Lord and really burning brightly for Him and serving and ministering to others. We're going to read uh, a letter now that was written around 95 A.D., so 30 to 35 years later. And notice what happened to the church. Notice what happened. They started off really well, and then their flame, their, their fire in their heart toward Christ began to dim, and, and they lost their first love. Instead of being filled with love, they lost it. And it's, isn't it amazing how just a little bit of time and 30 years is not a lot of time, especially for a body of believers. And they started off so well, and then they slowly, slowly got concerned about things of this life, and they got concerned with the, the cares of this world. And, and isn't it true? Has anybody noticed that this world and everything that you're seeing on television, I would encourage you not to watch much television, uh, because there's so much now, the agendas of all these networks and even the media is slowly, slowly, it's like, uh, it's like water on sandstone and it's, it's slowly eroding your faith. It's slowly eroding the things that God wants to build up in your life. Don't allow that to happen, folks, because there is and there are agendas out there. And you know what they are. There's homosexual agendas trying to make everybody accept this, this lifestyle. And it's not a lifestyle, it's a sin. It's a sin, no different than fornication, no different than a man and a woman outside of marriage uh, getting together. It's no different. It's sin. And homosexuality is sin. Um, stealing is a sin. Lying is a sin. There are many sins, and that's just one of them. But our culture is slowly eroding the confidence of the church and people. Now it's totally accepted in the schools, and now children have to, uh, they have to make a decision about what gender they are. These kind of things are horrible. But notice that that's what's happening. And so it can happen to us. And I believe to some extent it is happening to us. And that's why this letter is so important, because we must resist it. We don't have to get militant. There's no need to, for people to, to, to get involved in a militia and get a bunch of guns and, and attack something. No, we don't do that. God has not called us to attack anyone. He has called us to pray. And how many of us are really praying? I really want to encourage you to pray, folks. Really pray. We need to be praying. Um, whether we're doing it online here like we've been doing on, on Tuesday nights for the, uh, this last week, and we'll do it again this week, um, we need to be praying. Uh, whether it's together or just with your family, let's be devoted to prayer. Because prayer changes things. Because God rarely does anything without His people getting on their knees. He can do anything. But He rarely will do anything unless we have a, a desperation in our heart. Do we really want it? Do we really want Him for His kingdom to come? Do we really want to, to be free from the shackles that the world has put on some? Do you want your mind and your heart to be renewed by the washing of the water of the Word as we're encouraged to do in Romans? Do you really want that? 
Because if you do, then it ought to change us, right? And no better time than right now for it to change us. And so Paul, you know, 30 years, 35 years earlier, the church was doing really great. Ephesus was doing great. And in that short amount of time, Jesus now has to rebuke that church. They were doing a lot of really wonderful things. They were very busy, but they had lost their first love. And so with that, let's read chapters 2, verses 1 through 7. It won't take long, and then we'll get into it. It says, To the angel of the church of Ephesus write, These sayings says he who holds the seven stars in his right hand, who walks in the midst of the seven golden lampstands. And notice what he says, I know your works. I know your works, and I know your labor. I know your patience, and that you cannot bear those who are evil. And you have tested those who say that they are apostles and are not, and have found them liars. And you have persevered, and have patience, and have labored for my name's sake, and have not become weary. Nevertheless, notice, I have this against you, that you have left your first love, that you have left your first love. Remember, therefore, from where you have fallen, repent and do the first works, or else I will come to you quickly and remove your lampstand from its place, unless you repent. But this you have, that you hate the deeds of the Nicolaitans, which I also hate. He who has an ear, verse 7, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To him who overcomes, I will, give to, I will give to eat from the tree of life, which is in the midst of the paradise of God. The loveless church. And this is kind of a paradox, isn't it? Because when we think of a church, we ought to be the people that are the most loving. We ought to be the most compassionate. We ought to be the most concerned. We ought to be the most uh, giving. And yet, we know that uh, today, the Bible says that as iniquity, it says in Matthew, as iniquity begins to abound, as sin begins to be more manifested and things get uglier and uglier in the world, there's a tendency, because iniquity shall abound, the love of many will grow cold. And that, that's certainly true of the world, but it's also of the church too. And that's something that we have to really guard against. We have to pray and say, Lord, give me that heart of love and compassion for people. Uh, first for you, because if we have a love for God, we're going to have a love for people. But if we just have a love for people, we're going to be in sad shape before long because you can serve. If, if, if this relationship on the horizontal is, is all you have, you're going to burn out quickly and you're going to get really angry and you're going to get bitter and you're going to get frustrated and there won't be any love at all. It'll just be a, a one work after another. You know, this is my, my, my to-do list, and I just do it and do it and do it. And why aren't they, you know, thankful that I'm helping them with this? And why aren't they grateful that I'm helping them with this? And you can be doing and doing and doing, but because there's no love, the motivation is not love, what happens? We get frustrated, we get angry, we get bitter. But if we have love for Him, and everything that we do is motivated by His love, that He's shown to us, right? The Bible says that... Um, God demonstrated His love for us that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. That's how He demonstrated true agape love. That's the highest form in the Greek language that Jesus used. That's the highest form of, of, of love uh, was agape. It was, a self, it was a selfless love. It wasn't self-serving. It was rather other-centered. It was self-sacrificing. It's willing to give of itself to uh, whatever extent the Lord would have. And that's the kind of love that Jesus has. 
And that's the kind of love, if the Spirit of God is in us as Christians, that love ought to be going forth to others around us. And if it's not, we have to ask the question, why? And, you know, we can be like, um, you know, that was what Mary and Martha struggled with, wasn't it? Remember Mary and Martha in Luke chapter 10? Martha was serving and getting really angry, and, and, and she's there in the house, and Jesus is there, and, and Mary is, is just sitting at the feet of Jesus. She's just listening to what he has to say, just drinking it all in. And Martha's running around, her sister is running around the house, getting things ready, get dinner prepared. And finally, she's just like, Lord, will you tell my sister to get up and do something? And Jesus said to her, Mary, or or, uh, Martha, Mary has chosen the right part, and it's not going to be taken away from her. You know, um, you you were concerned about many things, but she has done the right thing. You know, and, and, and it wasn't that Jesus was upset with Martha. But he, her heart was not in the right place, right? And so we can be like that too if we're not careful. That's why this relationship uh, vertically has to be there. We have to do, we have to love him because of what he's done for us. Everything that he's done for us, think of it. He's, he's loved us. He's, he's died on the cross for us. He's promised to prepare a place for us. He's promised that as he ascended into heaven, he's interceding for us. And then he also promised in John 14 that he's going to come back for us. And then we're going to be with him forever, forevermore. And we'll rule and reign with him on the, on the earth for a thousand years and then on into eternity in the new heavens and the new earth. I mean, what more could Jesus have done for us? And yet, this world around us has got us so focused on the things of this earth that we lose track of the real thing, the bigger thing, the most important thing, and that's a love for him. So it is a paradox, the loveless church. We ought to be the most loving people on the earth. Even when we're angry, there's nothing wrong with being angry and being frustrated, but it's what we do with that anger, how we respond in that anger. Anger is not a bad thing, but how we deal with it is. Let's look at verse 1. It says, To the angel of the church of Ephesus write, These things says he who holds the seven stars in his right hand. Seven stars are in his right hand, and it demonstrates that Jesus that he is in control, that he has ownership and possession of those seven stars, those messengers, those pastors of those seven literal churches in Asia Minor at the time that this was written around 95 A.D. These were real churches. Ephesus was a real church. And the right hand speaks of authority and strength, and that's, that's important to understand. And the thing we have to remember is that any man who is in a position... Uh, as a pastor or, or any position of leadership in the church, he must realize that he is accountable and he is under the lordship of Jesus Christ. He's not to share his own message. You know, uh, there's many messages that people have, but the one message that's important is the message of salvation and grace through Jesus Christ. That is the message that these men should be promoting, that we should be promoting, whether you're a pastor or whether you're uh, uh, all of us together, we're children of God. We should all be in that same mind of sharing the truth. We don't have the right to have our own message. We promote His message and the fact that there are seven stars in Jesus' hand also carries with it the idea is that the church is in his hands. You know that old, <laughs> that old Sunday school song, he's got the whole world in his hands. It's true. What does it say in John chapter 10, verse 27? John chapter 10, verse 27, Jesus said to his disciples, My sheep hear my voice, and I know them, and they follow me. 
and I give them eternal life, and they shall never perish, neither shall anyone snatch them out of my hand. Isn't that great to know? If you're a child of God, nothing can pluck you out of his hand. Nothing. No one. Nothing in heaven above or in earth beneath or in hell. It doesn't matter. There is no power that is greater than God. God is supreme in power and authority. He spoke it all into existence. He is able to speak it out of existence. And there's coming a day where he will. But notice... That's what he says. And I give them eternal life. My sheep, they hear my voice, and I know them, and they follow me, and I give them eternal life, and they shall never perish, neither shall anyone snatch them out of my hand. And in verse 29 it says this, My Father, who has given them to me, Jesus says, is greater than all, and no one is able to snatch them out of my Father's hand. What great assurance we have as children of God. I love that, don't you? I just love the fact that I'm in the hands of my loving Heavenly Father and no one can take me out of His hand. No one. No one. So rest in that, folks. Rest in it. And notice at the end of verse 1, he says that he not only holds the stars in his right hand, but he walks in the midst of the seven golden lampstands. And the identity of the seven stars and the seven lampstands, they're given to us in the first chapter of Revelation in verse 20. Let me just read it to you. He says, The seven stars are the angels or the messengers or the pastors of the seven churches. And the seven lampstands which you saw, they are the seven churches. So is the book of Revelation so difficult that nobody can understand? Granted, there's portions that are difficult, and, but there are portions that are very obvious, like this. He even defines what they are. We, we just heard them. So is it un, un, are we without understanding? No, we understand what he's saying. It makes, makes complete sense. But notice that he stands, that he's in the midst of the golden lampstands. And Jesus has access and should have access to and have complete mobility to minister in the church, right? He bought us. We are blood-bought, purchased Christians. He has the right to minister in our midst and in and through us. Remember what he says, he is Emmanuel. And what is Emmanuel? God with us. He is God with us. And, he, and, and if he has to knock to gain entrance into the church, as he did to the church of Laodicea, which is the very last church in chapter 3 that Jesus talks about, there's a grave problem. When Jesus has to knock to have entrance into a church that he has bought with his own blood, there's a real problem. Remember what Jesus said in Revelation chapter 3 to the church at Laodicea. He says, Behold, I stand at the door and knock, and if anyone hears my voice and opens, I will come into him and dine with him and he with me. Notice the grace of God. He could just say, You close the door on me after all that I've done for you? I'm done with you. Is that what he said? No. He says, I stand at the door and knock. He shouldn't even have had to be knocking. The door should have been wide open, right? But he still stands at the door and knocks, and anyone who opens, he'll come in. And let me ask you, is that your heart today? Have you gotten to the place in your walk with the Lord where you've gotten so far in your relationship that you said, you know what, Lord, I've gone this far. I don't want to go any further. I'm content with my my fire insurance, I know I'm going to heaven, I know I'm born again, but I'm just going to not, I'm really not going to be a, a disciple. I'm just going to be a, a Christian by name. And you know what? If your heart is that way, you need to repent. You need to turn from that. You need to think differently. You need to turn 180 degrees in the opposite direction. It's so important for us to do that. We can't stay the same as we were yesterday. We're always growing. We should always be growing. So the problem 
could be that the church has its own agenda and has become perverse. And, and that's kind of what happened back here. They, they, they began to lose their first love. And some churches, they do, they have their own agenda and they've become perverted or perverse. Now, when we think of perverse, we think of somebody who is sexually immoral. But perverse can also mean uh, showing a deliberate and obstinate desire to behave in a way that is unreasonable or unacceptable or contrary to the accepted or expected standard or practice. You know, God has created us to glorify Him and to worship Him. And when we cease to do that, when we cease to allow ourselves to be the conduit of God's message of the gospel and also of His love, we become perverted. We become less than what we were created to be. That would be like Ford making a, a new F-150 on the, on the, on the, um, uh, on the assembly line. And the car gets completely finished. It looks spotly, you know, it looks spotless, and the chrome is shining. And they put it out there on the showroom floor. And that F-150 says, "You know what? I don't want to be a truck anymore. I'm tired of these contractors throwing their shovels in the back of my truck, in the back of me, and, and running around in the mud. I want to do something else with my life. It doesn't. The, the, the truck doesn't have that option. The truck was created." for a specific thing. The church has been created for a certain thing, and when we cease to do that, we become perverse. And there are some ministers or some churches, people in churches too, that they've forgotten why they exist in the first place. They've forgotten who it is that they should be serving and why they should be serving. Our motivation is so important. We have to be personally and corporately motivated rightly you know, and, and we have to do it because, you know, are we, are we Christians only so that we can have the assurance of going to heaven and not going to hell? Do, do we become a Christian just because we will have hope that God will do good things for us? Is that really where it, it ends for us? And while those things aren't necessarily wrong, we want to go to heaven. We want God to give us good things, and He does. Are we eternally grateful for what He has done for us and what He has spared us from? That's the thing I, I got to consider, you know. And remember, He was forsaken on the cross and was separated from God the Father for the very first time. He had never experienced that in all of His existence. And He saved us from an eternity separated from God. And He gave Himself an offering for sin. He gave His life. He took our place in judgment. We could not pay the price for that atonement, but Jesus did. He did, because He's God in the flesh. And so Jesus walks among the different churches, and He has the right to critique and to examine. And I believe He's doing that with us right now, isn't He? Just by reading this letter, He's critiquing us. He's examining our hearts. And will you allow your heart to be examined? You know, and, and again, this is a difficult time in our history of our country and the church as well. We'll never forget this. But I hope that God has His complete way in all of us throughout all of this. And again, don't be condemned. This is not about condemnation at all. I want to be convicted because I know there are things that I need to change in my life. I would ask you to do that today. I would ask you to think about those kinds of things and get serious. And get serious in proclaiming that message with your family, with your friends, with your coworkers. And Jesus has the right to do these things, to examine us, because He created us, number one, and also He redeemed us. By the act of creation and redemption, He has that right to do those things. And don't be afraid of giving Him all of your life. What, what is there to be afraid of? I used to be afraid of, 
I had a, a, a friend of mine named David Rickards and uh, <laughs> he used to share and uh, pray for me often and um, I'll never forget thinking to myself I don't want to be like him Sorry about that. But now I am, thankfully. I have no idea why I went that, but uh, anyway. But he has the right. And see, the thing is, is we have nothing to be afraid of. We have nothing to be afraid of. God's plan for my life, for your life, is so great we can't even imagine and, and many of you are experiencing it right now. I mean, would you ever want to go back again to your old life? There's no way I'd want to go back. There's only going forward and upward. I don't. I could, that old life of mine is dead. It's gone. I'm glad. Good riddance. It's buried six feet under, and hallelujah for that, right? But I didn't want to be like that. But you know what? When God gets a hold of you, He changes your heart. He gives you a new heart, and that's wonderful. But you know what? Any fellowship can easily get off focus if we get our focus off of Jesus. You remember in Matthew chapter 14, um, Jesus, um, we were just in Israel a, a couple weeks ago now, and we actually took a boat from the western, I'm sorry, the eastern shore of the Sea of Galilee to the western shore over to Gennesaret. And it's the same trip that Jesus and his disciples made. Uh, look with me at Matthew chapter 14, because I think this is important. Because we can get our focus off of Jesus, and the only thing that happens when that happens is we begin to sink. We begin to sink morally. We begin to sink in every other way. Look with me at Matthew 14, beginning in verse 22. It says, Immediately Jesus made his disciples, and this is right on the heels of Jesus ministering to those 5,000 on the eastern side of the Sea of Galilee. He had ministered to the 5,000 with the bread and the fish. The fish, And so immediately after that, Jesus made his disciples get into a boat, and they went before him to the other side, which is on the western side, or the place of Gennesaret, or um, Noph Ginnisar is where we went. And when he had sent the multitudes away, he went up on a mountain uh, by himself to pray. Now when evening came, he was alone, but the boat was now in the middle of the sea, tossed by the waves, for the wind was contrary. And now on the fourth watch of the night, so this is sometime between 3 and 6 o'clock in the morning, when the disciples saw Jesus, or in the fourth watch of the night, Jesus went to them walking on the sea. And it's really not a sea, it's a lake. So he's walking across the lake, and they were troubled, saying, It's a ghost, and they cried out for fear. But immediately Jesus spoke to them, saying, Be of good cheer. It is I. Do not be afraid. And Peter answered him and said, Lord, if it's you, command me to come out to you on the water. And I love that. I love that. None of the other disciples were thinking that, but Peter was just crazy enough, and I love that about him is that he's like, you know what, if this is really you, Lord, if you're really this powerful, let me come out to you. And so what did, the, what did Jesus say to him? Verse 29, so he said, come. Come on, Peter, hop out of the boat. Come out and meet me. And when Peter had come down out of the boat, he walked on the water to go to Jesus. Now look what happened. But when he saw that the wind was boisterous, and the wind can be like all the distractions in our life, all the things that are going on. Even this coronavirus can be the wind, boisterous, all around us, right? Right? completely freaking us out. We're looking at the wind and 
We're supposed to be looking at Jesus. Look what happened. So, but when he saw that the wind was boisterous, he was afraid. And fear is, is a natural thing, and that's okay. And he began to sink, and he cried out, saying, Lord, save me. And immediately Jesus stretched out his hand and caught him and said to him, Oh, you of little faith, why did you doubt? Why did you doubt? And when they got into the boat, the wind ceased. And then those who were in the boat came and they worshipped him, saying, Truly you are the Son of God. Now what's the point in all this? As long as Peter had his focus on Jesus, he was able to walk. He was the only one. He was the only one to walk on water. Moses didn't even walk on water. Moses walked through the water. The sea was parted and he walked on dry ground along with the Israelites. But Peter was the only one in history that's ever walked on water other than Jesus himself. So before we bash Peter too much, we have to realize he was the only one who even had the guts to do it, right? So he walks out and as long as his focus was on Jesus. And see, that's where ours needs to be too. So as long as his focus was there on Christ, he was able to walk. I would have loved to have seen what would happen if he would have just kept his focus they could have played frisbee out there and, and <laughs> you know, they could have done a number of things. But as soon as he saw all the noise around him, he starts looking at that instead of Jesus. And see, that's the, the lesson for us today. One of the lessons is not to let those things crowd in around us. Be careful, folks. Keep Church, keep your eyes on Jesus, not on anyone else, no one else, no other message. We listen to the messages, take what's good, leave out what's not so good, but mainly focus on Him and focus on His Word. Focus on the Word of God. Focus on Jesus Christ. It's the only peace you're going to have. If you look at everything else, you're going to start losing it. You can give your peace away. Did you know that? Jesus said, My peace I give unto you. Don't give it away. When you're in the Word and when you're in prayer and when you're thinking and doing and, and serving Him, helping others at this time, you're not going to be thinking about what's happening on Drudge Report. You're not going to be thinking about what's happening on CNN or Fox News. You're going to be busy. Be busy about the things of God. Get your heart right. Pray and seek Him with all of your heart. Let's go on to verse 2. Notice what Jesus said to this church at Ephesus. He says, I know your works, I know your labor and your patience, and that you cannot bear those who are evil. And the word works there is toil. Uh, so he says, I know your works. These are things I know about you. And you know, there are some in our fellowship who really do. They really labor and they, they've been toiling for years. And you know what? Praise the Lord for you. Praise the Lord for you who have worked and you've toiled for years. And then labor. He says, I know your labor. This is the idea of this is intense labor with grief and with sorrow. Isn't it true that serving the Lord often is that there's grief associated with it. There's sorrow in it because you see the state of people and you see uh, the state of things, and yet you're called to be right in the middle of it and still minister love and peace and grace and compassion even to people that don't even care. And, and that they, you'll never get an applause for it. No one's going to stand around and applaud us for doing those things, but Jesus will, and He is. Notice the patience. He goes, I've, known, I've seen your patience, church, in this Ephesus. I've seen your patience. And this is endurance. In the New Testament, the characteristic, this is the characteristic of someone who has not swerved from his deliberate purpose and his loyalty to faith to even the greatest trials and sufferings. That's what that word means, patience. It's endurance. It's, it's um, in, in the difficult times, it's fortitude, going forward in spite of those things. And see, here it is. It's possible 
to work hard for the Lord. And we should be working for the Lord. But first, spend the time with him that you, that you need. Get to know him. Get to know his heart. Be fully raptured in your heart through him first. And then, as a result of that relationship, then we go out and do. And see, that's the difference. There are many people who are busy going out, doing all kinds of things. And it is possible to be out there busy, 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 doing many things, laboring and persevering, and then forgetting why and whom you're doing it for. It's very possible. And it happens all the time. And that's when the church, like Ephesus, comes into view because they had all of that going for them, but they had left their first love. And so the motivation behind all of these things was so important. It's so important in the motivation, the reasons why we do things. The church at Ephesus was a formidable force. They were. They had a lot of things going. They were dedicated. They were busy. They endured hardship. They were doers of the Word. <laughs> they were. Remember what it says in James? He says, um, uh, Thus also, faith by itself, if it does not have works. Remember, James says, if faith does not have works, it is dead. In other words, we can claim to have a faith in God and yet do nothing about it. And, 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 and we prove, don't we, by doing nothing, that we really don't have a faith at all. And see, our works, we know, don't make us right before God. We know that our works don't save us. We're saved by grace through faith in Jesus Christ, right? It says that in Ephesians 2, verse 8. So we're saved by grace through faith, not of works, lest any man should boast. Otherwise, we would. But as a result of that faith, as a result of that relationship, we do something then, right? Isn't that the natural indicator that God is doing something in my heart, in your heart, when we, when we do that? When we know that we've been saved and, and, and we, we understand the great... I mean, remember Mary Magdalene, out of whom Jesus cast out seven demons? She was forgiven much, and therefore she loved much. And I love that. And that, that's kind of me, you know. I mean, I wasn't a, a, a serial killer, uh, but I had my issues in my life, um, you know, and, and as we all do. But you know what? Those who have been forgiven much, they love much. But, but notice what James says. He says, but someone will say, you have faith and I have works. And then James says, show me your faith without your works and I will show you my faith by my works. See the difference? I can, show my, I can prove my faith by doing things. But I better be doing things motivated out of love for God rather than just being busy. Anybody can do that. Americans, we have the to-do list down. We can take a list and we can execute that list. We can get anything done on the planet if, if we want, if we put our mind to it, because we're good at activity. But the one thing that we're, we're not so good at is standing still and waiting and listening, and especially to the Lord, and letting Him motivate us, letting the very love of God be infused in us, because you know the difference when somebody's doing something just to put a notch in their belt and somebody who's doing something motivated by love, you know it when you see it because there's a selflessness involved. They could care less about themselves. And sometimes, they, you know, they don't even need to necessarily care about you to, to some great extent. They're doing it because Jesus loves you. And they show up with a meal. They show up with something to help you with. And they're not hung up on what you might think of them. Although they do love you and they demonstrate it, they're doing it because they love God. And you're being loved as a result of that. You know, and what a wonderful thing that is. But notice, he goes on, and he says, And you have tested those who say they are apostles and are not, and have found them liars. 
in, in Acts chapter 1, verse 21 and 22, we really find out who the requirements of an apostle. And it's very simple. There are no more apostles today. There are men who have titles a mile long after their name. Well, I am the, you know, the most reverend, uh, you know, uh, DDD, MS, you know, and they have all these lofty titles, and it just keeps going on. You know, I'm the apostle and bishop of, of, of New York, and, you know, I've, you know, and then this list keeps getting longer and longer and longer, right? But notice what the definition of, 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 an, of a true apostle, there were only 12 of them, and it, the, the requirements are written for us in Acts 1, verse 21. It says, Peter says, therefore, of these men, you can read it in context, but this was after Judas had hung himself and the church had met in the upper room the very day that uh, Jesus was resurrected, and Jesus did appear to them that same day. But notice what it says. It says, therefore, of these men who have accompanied with us all the time that the Lord Jesus went in, out, went in and out among us, beginning from the baptism of John to the day that he was taken up from, from us, one of these must become a witness with us of his resurrection. And Peter did that because Judas had hung himself, and he thought, we, we need to add another guy. Right? But what was the requirement? That they had to be with them from the beginning of the baptism of John to the day that, he, that Jesus was taken up. He had to be a witness of those things. That was the requirement. There's nobody on the earth who has that ability now. So there are no more apostles in that sense. But going on in verse 3, notice what Jesus says. You've persevered. You have patience. And have labored for my name's sake and have not become weary. And again, the idea of persevered is, is to, to carry a burden. To, to, to carry a burden like a big load on your shoulders. And that can be figuratively or literally. Um, and so it, it means to bear with um, something that's burdensome, to carry something. And Jesus is saying, I know that you do this. You have persevered. You've had patience. And you've labored for my name's sake and have not become weary. And um, he said, nevertheless, I have this against you, that you have left your first love. And here is the crux of the whole matter today. And I'm going to be going a little longer today because we can. So bear with me. I know this is a long message. But this word love is agape. And this is honeymoon love. Remember that day, guys and gals, when you, when you, um, the day you got married and the, the way you looked at your spouse in the eye as you said your vows and your hearts were just, tears were coming out of your face and out of your eyes. And you would just do anything. You would do anything for that person. You would give your very life for them, right? That's the kind of love. It's the kind of honeymoon love. You, you do, you'd be willing, your, your heart is on fire in love with someone. And you know, that's the way Jesus would have us to be for Him. And, and that's the way, guys, we ought to see our brides. Even though you may have been married for many years, you know, don't let that flame die. Always be wooing your wife and loving her and encouraging her. Always try to win her. And wives, do the same for your husbands. There's a decision we can make. You know, we can either uh, stoke those fires or we can let them die. And don't let, that, don't let that happen. Guys, get the flowers on the way home. Do you feel like getting her flowers and bringing her uh, you know, something that she likes to eat maybe, bringing that home to her? You may not always feel that, but you know when you don't feel like it, just do it anyway and watch what happens as a result of her. Look at her eyes when you bring those home and watch the reciprocation. She hugs you. She kisses you. 
and you think about that love. It's, it's a decision. It's not a feeling so much. The feelings can catch up later, but it's a, it's a, it's a decision that you have to make. Love is like that, isn't it? Long after the honeymoon, the, 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 the determination to continue to love is there, but it's a decision, and you can continue doing it. But unfortunately, many people just kind of sit on the couch and watch television, and they, and they just kind of they don't talk anymore, and that's their fault. But we need to be better than that, and especially with the Lord, especially with our spouses. Let it encourage you. So do you remember the day you were married? You know, for Ephesus, at this time, the honeymoon was over. They had had this burning love and these burning these great works that they were doing, but then something happened. Someone has said that 90% of the activity in the average local assembly will go on as it is presently, even if the Holy Spirit did not exist. And that's kind of an indictment, and that's really what Jesus was saying to this church. You know, if, um, you know, you can be doing everything for the wrong reasons. You can be doing everything for the wrong reasons. In 1 Corinthians, Paul said, Though I speak with the tongues of men and of angels... Even though I can do these things I, I, and have not love, I've become like sounding brass or a clinging cymbal. And though I have the gift of prophecy and understand all mysteries and all knowledge, and though I have all faith, he's speaking hypothetically here, and I know all mysteries and knowledge, and though I have all faith so that I could remove mountains and, and have not love, I am nothing. He goes on in that passage, and you get the idea. I can have all of these things going for me, but if I don't have God's love, agape love, I am nothing but sounding brass. I'm just an empty... I'm just an empty instrument. Turn with me to John chapter 21. You remember John chapter 21 beginning in verse 15. This is a passage that we know very well, but I think it fits. Remember after Jesus' death, after his resurrection, remember that the angel in the tomb when Peter and John looked in, or uh, actually I think it was Mary, uh, told the disciples to, to go meet Jesus in Galilee. And so they ended up going up to Galilee. That's quite a ways away to the north. So finally, the disciples go up there, and Peter's just like, he gets really discouraged, and he says, you know what, I'm just going back to my fishing business. I know Jesus called me, you know, three, three and a half years ago. And he's dead, so I'm just going to go back to my old business. So what does he do? He and the guys, they get in the boat. They're out fishing all night. They didn't catch anything. And they get close to shore, and they see Jesus. And this is where it picks up. John chapter 21, verse 15. And this is important to notice. So when they had eaten breakfast, Jesus said to, because they got to the shore, says, so when they had eaten breakfast on the shore, Jesus said to Simon Peter, Simon, son of Jonah, do you love me? Do you agapeo me? That's the word there. You remember this. Do you agape me more than these, more than these fish, more than this business that you've got, Peter? Do you really love me? And Peter said to him, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. But in the Greek, the word is phileo. It's just a, a, a friendly love, right? There's a difference between these two verses. You're going to see this word love, and the, the one that Jesus uses is agapeo, agape. And Peter uses just a friendly love kind of, just like a camaraderie kind of love. And so Jesus, having said that, and Peter saying, Lord, you know that I just, I phileo you, you're a good friend. Jesus said, feed my lambs. Verse 16, he said to him again the second time, Simon, son of Jonah, do you agapeo me? Do you love me, Peter? And Jesus said, yes, Lord, you know that I, I love you, I phileo you. That's the word there. 
I'm fond of you, Lord. And he said, tend to my sheep. And then finally Jesus said the third time, Simon, son of Jonah, do you phileo me? In other words, do you even love me on a, friend, a friendship level, Peter? And can you see what the Lord is doing? And then it says, and Peter was grieved because he said to him the third time, do you phileo me or do you love me? And he said to him, Lord, you know all things. You know that I phileo you. And you notice what Jesus said. Did Jesus upbraid him and say, Peter, you're dismissed. You're fired. You don't love me after all that I've done for you? After I gave my life for you, I empowered you, and, and I'm going to empower you on the day of Pentecost? You don't even know that yet, but I, I'm going to be doing, I've done and I'm going to do so many things through your life, and this is what you, this is how I'm returned the favor? Is that what Jesus said? No. What did Jesus say? He says, feed my sheep. He said, Peter, your love right now is imperfect. And you know, my love for God is imperfect. My love for people is imperfect. Maybe you feel the same way this morning. It's true, and that's why a chapter like this is really challenging to us, because this church in Ephesus, their hearts weren't burning for love for God anymore. And that's why we need to have that love for God. Seek that more than anything else. Seek to have the very love of God. Speak to spend the time with Him. Get that first. Get that first and then go out because people know the difference when they see somebody who's not doing it for the right reasons, for the right motivation. We can't do it just to put a notch on our belt and say we've done some religious duty. It's, it, it's not good enough. We have to do it because we love Him. And we have to do it because of what He's done for me and you. So when love, when love begins to decline, the soul begins to drift. And what are the ways in which we can lose our first love? Let's just look at them. We can lose our first love when we... When, um, when other things that we love compete and they crowd out the one that we love. And that could be a spouse, but first, importantly, it's about Jesus. We should love Him first and foremost, and then our spouses and our family and those people. He has to be first. And when that's in the right order, everyone is blessed. Everyone is blessed when the right order. But we can also lose our first love when we no longer spend as much time with the one we truly love. If you don't spend time, guys, with your wife, it shows them that you really don't love them anymore. You'd rather go to the game with the, with the guys. You'd rather polish the car. You'd rather go out golfing. You'd rather do other things instead of spend time with the one that you made vows to many years ago. And see, Jesus, He's asking us to do that. To let Him... Spend the most time with Him. And all these other relationships on the horizontal are going to be just right if we do that first. And it doesn't mean a great quantity of time, but real time, a quality of time. And quantity, if you can, if you can afford it, certainly do it. But are we investing? Are we pursuing? Or are we just too busy? We have to be, um, we have to be honest about that. And, on, and, and there's also another phrase that we know that's called familiarity breeds contempt. When we become so familiar with somebody, we stop really respecting. We, stop, we start taking them for granted instead of loving them the way we ought to. And we can do that with each other, with our spouses, with our family, and we can also do it with the Lord. We become so familiar that we stop loving. We stop being challenged anymore. We just kind of stop, and we're just kind of stagnant. We're like the Dead Sea. Remember that uh, illustration that I gave to you? It's up on, the, uh, uh, up on my wall here, but there's a picture. And if you look, up, uh, on this, look at me here, 
the, the Mount Hermon is up here in the northern part of Israel, and then there's the Jordan, and then it goes into the Sea of Galilee, and then there's another, uh, the Jordan continues to go down into the sea, the, to the Dead Sea. And the reason why the Sea of Galilee is so flush with fish and so alive is because the water comes from Mount Hermon, comes down into the Sea of Galilee, and then it gives. It takes from above, and it gives out from beneath, all the way through the Jordan Valley, filling all those uh, plush um, lands for the farmers. But then it gets down to the Dead Sea. And why is the Dead Sea dead? Because there's no outlet. It just, the water... Uh, whatever water does get there, it just stays and it collects and it becomes putrid and it becomes dead. And that's why it's the Dead Sea. And so you and I are a lot like that too. If I'm receiving from above, give out what you have. The, 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 the Sea of Galilee is a perfect picture, I think, or a picture of the way we could be, the way we should be. Receive from above first and then give out. And see, that's the secret to the whole thing. And even the geography of the land of Israel speaks to that. I think that's wonderful. In 2 Corinthians chapter 11, what, is, what, is, uh, what does Paul say to the Corinthians? He says, For I am jealous for you with godly jealousy. For I have betrothed you to one husband that I may present to you as a chaste virgin to Christ. That was Paul's heart, to present this church of Corinth, to love her. And, and, and he says, I betrothed you to Christ. I basically took you to him. And see, and that, that's the thing, and to be jealous. Jealousy is not a bad thing if it's in the, with the right heart. See, God is jealous for us. He's jealous for us, not because He needs us, but because He knows what's best for us, and He knows that I'm going to be more fulfilled as a person and more in love with Him when I experience that, and, and I become more useful in His hands. Isn't that wonderful? I would encourage you to read Jeremiah chapter, tw uh, chapter 2, the first 13 verses. Let me just share with you just the beginning of it. Because Jeremiah is prophesying during a time when uh, the Babylonians are coming against Judah and Jerusalem around 606 B.C. And um, God is bringing his case against the children of Jerusalem, the children of Judah. And what does he say to them? He says, Moreover, in Jeremiah chapter 2, beginning in verse 1, Moreover, the word of the Lord came to me, Jeremiah said, saying, Go and cry in the hearing of Jerusalem, saying, Thus says the Lord. And notice his, his you can almost see the tears in God's eyes. He says, I remember you. He's speaking of Jerusalem. He says, I remember you, the kindness of your youth, the love of your betrothal, when you went after me in the wilderness. Wow. It's God saying that to them. I remember when the love was just beginning and I was just courting you and how things were. And he's calling them to repent, to turn, right? John Walvoord had this to say. He says, Thus it has ever been in the history of the church. Thus it has ever been in the history of the church. First, a cooling of spiritual love, then the love of God replaced by a love for the things of the world, with resulting compromise and spiritual corruption. And this is followed by departure from the faith and loss of spiritual, factual, spiritual testimony. And see, that's what happens. And that's why it's so important that we regain that again. You know, each of us uh, go to the Lord and say, Lord, any way that I have been floundering, that I've been disobedient, Lord, help me to be obedient to you again. 
Remember, therefore, from where you have fallen, he says. Notice, the first thing is to remember, and then to repent, and then do the first works again. See, remembering is actually a good thing. Sometimes we don't like to remember the things that we did, but sometimes it's good to go back for the things that we were doing right. Notice what Jesus says. Now, remember... Go back and remember what you did. And we need to go back and remember those early days when we first came to Christ. Do you remember the excitement and how exciting it was and how beautiful those days were? Get them back again. And how do you do that? You ask, you pray, you get on your face again. And remember what you did back then, the things that you did out of just a love for God. You would be willing to do anything for Him. Remember the excitement. Get that back again. It's possible. And you can't do it in your flesh. You have to pray. You do it through what God, how, you know, you do it through His Spirit. And notice it says, repent. Remember from where you have fallen and repent. In other words, change your mind. Change the way you're thinking and go and do those things. Go in a different direction from where you're going. Go in the opposite direction. That's really what repentance means. And I love what it says in Ephesians. It says, do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God by whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. We have the ability to grieve the Spirit of God. We don't want to do that, do we? Let's not grieve the Spirit of God. In Ephesians 5, verse 18, it says, And be not drunk with wine, wherein is dissipation or excess, but notice, be filled with the Spirit. There's the solution. Be filled with the Spirit of God. If you're filled with the Spirit of God, and that's something we have to ask for every day, folks. We, I need to do it. And I encourage you and implore you to do the same thing. Wake up every morning and say, Lord, this day, fill me with your Spirit. Not so that I'm weird and going out on a corner and doing, you know, and yelling at people and throwing the Bible. Nobody's going to respond to people like that, but they will respond to genuine love and care and concern. And that can only be done through the Spirit of God. There's a huge difference, and many people do not go that, go to that place. They can do the list. I can just go out and do things. That's easy to do. Anybody can do that, but to do it filled with the Spirit of God and asking God to fill you. He wants to give that to you. It's not like something you have to beg for. You pray for it, and then you step out in faith throughout your day, and you watch what He does. He does great and wonderful things. Notice, do the first works, He says. Go back and do those first works. Notice, or else I will come to you quickly and remove your lampstand from its place unless you repent. That's the, that's the thing. In other words, I'm going to remove your witness. And He was telling this to the church at Ephesus. If you, if you don't remember, if you don't um, repent, and you don't go back to those first works, you know, church, he was, saying, he was saying to them, you're so busy, but if you don't do these things, I'm going to remove your lampstand. I'm going to remove the witness out of your fellowship, out of your fellowship. And, and this is exactly what happened, because guess what? It wasn't long and, and the church began to decline and to decline and decline. And Ephesus now is a ruined city, completely filled, overrun with weeds and malaria-ridden and the habitation of lizards. That's the way it is today. It's become a tourist spot and there's nothing else there other than the ruins. And some churches are like that. They start off with great love, but now it's a mausoleum. And now there's no longer any love and everything becomes ritual. Everything becomes just something I do for him. And then the stained glass windows on the ceilings and on the walls are nothing more than stories of bygone ages. And the Spirit of God has left and because they've no longer allowed the Spirit of God to work in them. And that's the way it was with Ephesus. But church, we have to, this is a great time for us to reevaluate and say, Lord, while well, I'm really wounded by everything that's going on, 
But you know what? Let the Lord minister to you. He's not angry with you. He's not angry with you. He loves you. He loves you. But let's take this time, take this opportunity to consider these things. You know, if you would, read, uh, let me just uh, read uh, a couple of final things. We're getting close to the end here, and thank you for your patience. In Ezekiel, it talks about the Shekinah glory, the very presence of God being removed from the temple. And this is right before um, the Babylonians came in. God, if you recall, in Ezekiel chapter 9, verse 9, let me read it to you. It says, Then, uh, and this is the Lord speaking to Ezekiel, Then he said to me, The iniquity of the house of Israel and Judah is exceedingly great, and the lands are as full of bloodshed, and the city full of perversity. For they say, The Lord has forsaken the land, and the Lord does not see. As for me also, my eye will neither spare, nor will I have pity, but I will recompense their deeds on their own heads. So God is going to bring judgment upon the, the, the children of Judah. But notice what it says in Ezekiel 10, verse 4. It says, The glory of the Lord went up from the cherub and paused over the threshold of the temple, and the house was filled with the cloud, or the Shekinah glory, the very glory of God. And the, and the court was full of the brightness of the Lord's glory. And then down in verse 18 of that same chapter, it says, Then the glory of the Lord departed from the threshold of the temple and stood over the cherubim. So now the Lord is moving from that place of the Holy of Holies. And finally in verse 23, what does it say? This is the indictment. This is what happens when a church no longer loves, when it's no longer being willing to be uh, loving. It says, The glory of the Lord went up from the midst of the city and stood on a mountain which is on the east side of the city. I was standing on that mountain not too long ago. The Mount of Olives It's to the east. I actually shared a Bible study in the, in the Garden of Gethsemane on that very mountain. But do you see what happened? And, and you know, Jesus is saying to the church, you know, if, if you don't turn from these things, I'm going to remove your witness. And that's exactly what happened even in, in Jerusalem. The very presence of God was just like, no one cares about me anymore. They're, they're just going through the motions. So the Spirit of God moves and then moves. And finally he goes out to the Mount of Olives and he's like, okay. That's why Jesus said, I've left your house to you desolate. Because they, they were so focused on, on just going through the motions. And see, this happens. And a lamp is supposed to bring light to an area, to a room. That's the witness of the church, the very light. And see, people need to see love in action. You know, love that is seen means much more than love that is just heard, right? So pray and be led by the Spirit of God. But notice verse 6, we're almost done. But this you have, you hate the deeds of the Nicolaitans. And the Nicolaitans were just a group of people who really separated the, uh, the clergy from, the, from the, the common people, and they created this kind of weird relationship between them. And you even see it today. Um, you know, there can be, um, and, and they were doing lewd and lascivious things, uh, to put it in a biblical way. They were doing perverted things. And instead of ministering to the people, they, they put a division between them and made them look more holier than everybody else. And see, it's never supposed to be that way. And, and, and these are the things that they hated. And Jesus says, but this you have. You hate the deeds of the Nicolaitans. And notice the Lord says, I hate those things as well. Hate those things. Notice verse 7, finally, he says, He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Notice, to him who overcomes, I will give to eat from the tree of life, which is in the midst of the paradise of God. Remember the tree of life in the Garden of Eden from the very beginning of man. 
there it was, the tree of the knowledge of, or, or the tree of life was there. And then notice also, you can look over in Revelation chapter 22, in verses 2 and 14, it talks about the tree of life again in the new heavens and the new earth, in the new Jerusalem, a tree that yields 12 different types of fruits in its season along the, along the river there. And that, that is something that, that's, a, that's a promise that Jesus is making to those who overcome. And again, we can't overcome in our own strength. We can only overcome by the power of the blood of Jesus Christ, right? Isn't that what we do? That's how we overcome. We overcome the world by Jesus' blood, not because of our good works or good intentions or our bake sales or anything else that we might do. Let me read to you just a poem. It's very brief. It's only two stanzas, but I think, and then we'll end here, and thank you for your patience. And this just kind of wraps the whole thing up. Where is the blessedness I knew? When first I saw the Lord, where is the soul-refreshing view of Jesus and His Word? What peaceful hours I once enjoyed, how sweet their memory still. But they have left an aching void the world can never fill. And so, as we consider these things, again, folks, I pray that you would be encouraged. There's no condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus, who walk after the Spirit, not after the flesh. And there is the, the impetus for us to walk in the Spirit. And that's why we need to be filled with the Spirit. And being filled with the Spirit means that my heart is filled with the love of God, even when I'm challenged, even when I don't feel on the outside like things are going well. And so, as we look at this church and as we have finished, uh, just see historically what happened here, but also see the encouragement and the exhortation that there is for us to just not allow ourselves to lose our first love. And I pray for all of you today that you would, um, that we would all take these things to heart and let the Lord lovingly convict us where we need to be convicted. Some of you may be doing just fine, but others may be, you may need to hear this. I, I certainly need to hear this. It's good for me to hear this. So folks, be encouraged. I want to pray that um, you would just be blessed and that God would keep you and, and be encouraged in all of God's goodness. And keep your eyes focused on Him. Spend more time with Him than you ever have and let Him work in your heart. Amen? Amen. Let's pray. Father, we thank You for the exhortation today and just pray that You administer to us today, Father. Pour out Your Spirit upon us and help us to draw near to you, Lord. And help us, Lord, not out of, um, help us to do things not out of guilt, Lord, not out of um, manipulation. Father, for you don't cause, you don't manipulate anyone to do anything, Lord. Help us to do only those things that you've given us the grace to do. And Lord, help us to realize that we're just, we're one of many, Lord. The body of Christ is big. And Lord, someone and everyone has a place in it. So help us, Lord, not to, not to do anything out of, out of any kind of uh, coercion or manipulation or, or guilt, but to only do things motivated by your love. So we thank you and praise you in Jesus' name. Amen.